All right, so 1 Corinthians 13, you may have um, be familiar with this passage known as the love chapter. Um, you often hear it at weddings. This chapter is often you know, read or um, part of the message that is given or the focus of the message that's given, talking about love and its um, attributes, its qualities. Um, and so it kind of gets locked into that. You know, let's look at it for weddings. Let's look at it on Valentine's Day. Let's look at it, at it for our marriage or these sorts of things. But we need to remember that it's in 1 Corinthians, what we call 1 Corinthians chapter 13, for a reason. Paul puts it where he does in this letter to the church at Corinth for a reason. It has a context, and we need to understand that context in order to really gain and, and pull out a much broader and bigger application for our lives. This is not just for people who are, you know, in a serious dating relationship or who are getting married or who are married. This is for every single follower of Jesus, and it is vital. And it's actually put here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right in the heart of this section of the book where the Apostle Paul is really driving home about the meeting of the local church, coming together to remember Jesus by taking the bread and the cup, uh, the Lord's Supper, and giving thanks for what Jesus has done for us at the cross and proclaiming his death until he returns. It also gets into chapter 12 about how we are different. There's diversity in the body of Christ, yet we're one body. There's unity within that diversity and that we're supposed to work together and honor one another and seek to um, grow one another to be more like Jesus, to be full as the body of Christ. And so he goes into this discussion about, uh, about gifts and about different parts of the body. And, you know, the thing about the church at Corinth is a lot of their problems are um, kind of wrapped up, and I can, I can kind of use this little kid's bib that I have today, a little child's bib, to kind of sum up the mentality of a lot of the people in the church in Corinth at this time. If you can read that, it says, it's all about me. It's all about me. And so um, the people in the church of Corinth, many of them are part of that body, but having the perspective of, it's all about me. Now, I actually don't have any idea where we got this, Bib. You know, there's lots of things that you get when you have children that you're like, and where did that come from? <laughs> but this one, I, go, I look at it and go, you know, that's pretty awful. I really don't want our kids to ever have that mentality. Um, and, and certainly as we grow into adults, I hope that we can get rid of that mentality, yet it's really difficult not to have an it's-all-about-me mentality for life. So I'm just going to kind of put that there, hang that there on the edge, just to remind us what we're not striving for. But also to remind us, that for every one of us, this is what your flesh wants. This is what your flesh wants. This is what my flesh wants. My flesh wants to wear this right over here in my heart. It's all about me. This is, what, this is what I want in my flesh. And the same thing is true of you because you're human. We have to fight that, though. We have to fight that because if we know Jesus, then we've been born of the Spirit. And the Spirit is more powerful and is greater than our sinful flesh. We don't have to live with this mentality of it's all about me. So Paul 
what he says here as these ones are seeking, you know, people are seeking these different spiritual gifts. And, and a lot of them, you know, they want the kind of, sh- they want the showy gifts. They want the gifts where people will look at the person and go, well, aren't you a great person? Aren't you wonderful? Aren't you special? They want those. And, but, but Paul encouraged the, and gives exhortation. Um, exhortation is encouragement with authority, encouragement with oomph. In this case, encouragement with spiritual authority. He gives us exhortation to seek those things which build up and edify, grow the whole body of Christ. Not the things that just bring personal attention. And then at the end, he finishes what we call chapter 12. And really, remember, it's just one letter. There aren't these, all these divisions. This is a continuous thought. But verse 31, but earnestly desire the best gifts and yet I show you a more excellent way. And then he begins this discussion on love. So more important than the spiritual gifts in the church is this overarching theme or this, this culture that should be within the church, which should be in the atmosphere of the church, love. Love. It's got to have this primary place, and it's got to be viewed as more important than so many other things. And so let's read the first few verses. It says, chapter 13, verse 1, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing." And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Now think about this. You can speak every language. You have supernatural ability to speak every language with excellence. You could even understand everything said in heaven. Or you could just even view that as, maybe he's being hyperbolic in that sense of just, having this excellence of speech. And remember, we've talked about from the beginning of uh, our study in the book of Corinthians about how the, the church at Corinth or how the people of, Corinthian, of Corinth as a whole loved eloquent speech. They took great pride in their Greek philosophers. and the, Even in the Jewish community, they took, took pride in their, their rabbis who were eloquent of speech. You could have all sorts of special insight from God. You could have the sort of faith that can literally move mountains. You could be the most generous person on earth. You could even be a martyr for the cause. And yet, it could be for nothing. From all outward appearances, you could have everything. You could have a complete view of you are the best follower of Jesus to walk on the face of the planet at the current time. From all outward appearances. And yet, if your heart is not full of love, if your motivation is not love, if your character is not love, before God, it is nothing. And have we gotten to understanding, have we gotten to the point yet that we get that we really do live our lives for an audience of one? That ultimately, it's the evaluation of Jesus that matters. Because at the Bema Seat of Christ, at the Judgment Seat of Christ, for the church, 
for followers of Jesus, when your works are evaluated of what is lasting, that gold and silver, or what is going to be thrown in the fire and burn up, that straw and stubble, that there is one who is doing that evaluation. That Jesus is the one. And so, you know, your, your local church might think you're a great person. Your community might think you're a great person. Your family might think you're a great person. Because of all that you've done. But there's going to be one who judges and gives evaluation of your life. And it's his evaluation, ultimately, is the only one that counts. And think how much more we could be for Jesus if we lived our lives that way, if we stopped caring so much about what the people around us thought. We cared so much less about that and so much more about what Jesus thinks of us. About what Jesus thinks about what we've done or what our motivation is or our heart's intent or what we strive to do in the future. But we get so hung up. What pleases you? What do you want me to do? When's the last time You've asked Jesus that question about anything. Jesus, what do you want me to do? Remember, we could, from all outward appearances, have it all together and still have nothing before him. But love has to be primary. Love has to have that primary place. Remember the scripture, God is love. You know, we see in scripture, God is love and God is holy. And those things are held together very tightly. One is not without the other. But God is love is primary to his character. And then, so if we who have been, you know, born again, who have believed in Jesus Christ... If that's you this morning where you say, I believed in Jesus Christ, you know you've passed from death unto life, then you are in the process of becoming more like Jesus. And that means you should be in the process of becoming a more loving person. And if we aren't becoming more loving people, then that means that we are regressing in our faith. If we aren't becoming more loving, then that means we're regressing becoming less loving. And, and I don't think it's one of those things, I mean, yeah, it can kind of stay a little bit static, but it usually doesn't just stay in one place. It's either, you know, we're either growing to be more like Jesus or we're regressing. And regression is, is not good. It's kind of like if you, have a, if you have a child, you know, and you, you know, get trained, you train the child to, to use the bathroom on the toilet. You know, like, I mean, trust me, if you have, when you have kids, if you don't have... If you have kids or whatever, that's a huge win. You're like, yes. But then if you get that, and you're like, okay, we got that down, and then a few months later, wait, what's going on? We're not using the toilet anymore. anymore. That regression is not good. That's frustrating. That's like, oh, no. You know, how much of a bigger deal in our walk with Jesus 
when we regress, when we regress. I would argue that it's even messier when we regress spiritually. Love has to have that primary place. It needs to be, you know, it, it really becomes part of our DNA and needs to be replicated over and over again and so that it infiltrates every area of our life. There shouldn't be parts of our lives that are, you know, separate from love. It's like, oh, well, I'm, I'm doing well loving in my family or loving in my church, but at work, everybody knows I'm just a jerk. You know, it shouldn't be that way. It needs to get transferred into every area of life. Every area of life replicated over and over again as it should become our being, fundamental to who we are, loving people. So what are we doing with this love? What are the outlets for this love? Because love always has an object, whether that object is uh, personal or impersonal. So remember the two greatest commandments from God, and these are what Jesus emphasized when asked, what are the greatest, you know, what's the greatest commandment from the law? He said, you know, to love God, I'm going to paraphrase, but to love God with all that you are. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And oftentimes how we show that we love God is displayed in how we love the ones around us. Loving our neighbors as ourselves. And that's the foundation that the great commandments are the foundation of the great commission, which is to go into you know, all the world and make disciples. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the people groups. Like that's what we are to do, but that has to be done with love. And why, and you know, you're like, wait a second, but I thought you said all this was in the context of the local church. Absolutely. Because the local church is the vehicle for God's mission. So we can't be very effective in mission if we're not loving one another as God wants us to love one another. That's the biggest thing that, can, that inhibits the mission in the local church is a lack of love in the fellowship. Because when there's a lack of love in the fellowship, then we get so distracted by petty things that we aren't on mission. We're so busy putting out fires all over the place that we're not on mission. So those things are directly linked. It's not a casual you know, coincidence or something like that. It is a direct length, link between love for one another and our effectiveness in being obedient to the mission that Jesus has given us. If there isn't love in the local church, there won't be love in the local church's mission. It's like trying to play soccer without a ball. You got a bunch of people just running around the field kicking the air. Like that's not accomplishing a whole lot. You gotta have love there in order for you to actually be in the game. Have to have love. Have to have love. This is what Jesus said. John 13, 35. By this, all will know that you are my my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus knew that his mission could not be fulfilled if his disciples did not love one another. 
Why? Because if they would be so focused on infighting, they wouldn't be able to look outwards. Remember, before Jesus gives his message, you know, at a certain point, the disciples are sitting there arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Look, you know, with this mentality, it's all about me, was the disciples' mentality. These are people that Jesus handpicked that he was going to train and then send out into the world. And their mentality that he had to radically and fundamentally change was an all-about-me attitude that each one of them had. So in order to get them to be able to be ones that would be the catalyst for the message of Jesus and the mission of Jesus to go throughout the world, he first had to get them to love one another. Because if they couldn't do that, they couldn't do the mission. Do we get that? That if we don't love one another, we can't do the mission. That's how fundamental, fundamentally basic this is. We can't do the mission without loving one another. Well, what does that love look like? Is it a 1960s sort of do whatever feels good to you sort of love? Not hardly. Not hardly. Let's see these next verses. Pick up in verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Anybody feel like you just got punched in the throat? Because I read these verses in for myself personally, a lot of times that's a punch in the throat. Because let's go through it. Love is patient. You know what I don't want to be so often in life? Patient. Now, I want you to have patience with me a lot of times, but I don't want to have patience with other people. That's annoying. Why can't you just do what I want you to do exactly when I want you to do it? Patience. Love is patient. It's not something that comes natural to many of us. We have to work at it. And the Lord has ways of humbling us because sometimes we think, yeah, I've got that patience thing nailed down. And then a situation comes up and say, no, you don't. Not quite yet. Not quite yet, you don't. Love is kind. That's cool as long as the other person is kind and it's of somebody I naturally click with and get along with and it's easy, then kindness is cool, right? But that's not what's being said here. There aren't qualifiers of just with the people you like or just with the people you really care about. You know, it goes with strangers as well. And what about when they're not being kind? What about when you have the most rude waiter or waitress on the planet? What about when somebody in the grocery line just rams their cart right in front of yours and takes your spot or says something derogatory towards you for no reason? That's not so easy. God wants us to be kind. 
Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Hmm. That's really tough. Because, I mean, don't you want to know how great I am? I mean, have I, have I told you lately? I, I will if you let me. You know, I mean, are we not seeking for somebody to tell us how great we are, how good we are? Man, that one's hard. We love human accolades. That pat on the back does not act unbecomingly or is, means it's not rude. Love is not rude. Does not seek its own. It does not have this mentality of it's all about me. That's one, that, nothing will kill a move of God quicker than people are starting to have a it's about me mentality. Nothing will kill a local church quicker than a it's about me mentality. Because when it's about me, then that means everything in the church should be done for my, towards my preferences, my likes. Well, there's a problem with that. There's a fundamental problem with that. We all have different likes and preferences. So if we all have, it needs to be exactly how I like it, then there's going to just be constant conflict because we like things differently. Does not seek its own. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. But we're so easily provoked. Are you not easily provoked? Am I not easily provoked? How much does it take for you to sit down and type out an angry email? How long does it take? (coughs) Not always, but that's one reason. I I really strive for the 24-hour rule. If I'm angry, wait 24 hours. Get less angry. Get less angry. Deal with it with yourself before Jesus. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Wait a second. Now, how am I going to know the tally between you and me if I'm not keeping a record of how many times you've wronged me versus how many times I've wronged you? How are we going to know who owes who in this situation? In God's love, it's not about that. It's not about keeping those sort of records. And you could think that there's people in the church here at Corinth who would have a right to keep those records. What about the poor who are coming and the wealthy are bringing their food and not sharing it with them? Could they not keep a record of wrongs, of how they were wronged? Would you blame them for keeping that record? Can you imagine that in the church you come together and others have, you know, given, are given something and, and you're given nothing? Wouldn't they have a right to? But here Paul says, don't have that mentality. Don't keep a record. Don't keep a record of wrongs. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness. 
We should be known for being people who are against sin. Sin should grieve us. Sin should grieve us. When we see what's happened in different places around our country and around our world, when you see the news and all the sin that's involved, it should grieve us. We should be upset about these things. Yet so many times we take on as entertainment the same things that should grieve us in real life. Now how in one context is it supposed to be an entertainment and in another context it's supposed to grieve us? How can you flip the switch so easily between one and the other? Maybe you can. I have a hard time with that. I have a hard time doing it. Maybe it's easy for you, it's just, you know, in this category of unreality and it's no big deal or whatever. But can you imagine, though, that as, you know, and I speak to myself on this, as the people of Jesus, we are entertained by wickedness. That doesn't seem to jive with what the Apostle Paul is saying to us here. When he says, does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Yet I would contend that the majority of the modern you know, church in the United States of America does rejoice in unrighteousness almost every day. We do. And it's, it's a fundamental problem because it affects our sensitivity to the world that we're in and the sin that is around us every day. And we can so easily be passive about it, just like we're passive about what we see on the television. I'm not saying you're wrong and I'm right when I talk about that. I'm just saying we're wrong. Get what I'm saying? But rejoices with the truth. Remember, for Jesus and for the apostles, love and truth go hand in hand. You don't have one without the other. Love without truth isn't really love. It's an illusion of love. Don't get caught up in illusions of love. And again, a lot of times that illusion of love has high-sounding, flowery speech attached with it. Sometimes love tells you the hard truth. Sometimes the greatest acts of love that someone has given to me is, Chet, you are wrong. Chet, you are sinning. Sometimes the hardest words have been the most loving words. So two questions there. One is, when is the last time somebody has told you you're wrong? When is the last time somebody has loved you enough to tell you that you're wrong? And the second thing is, is that because there's no one willing to do that or because you don't give people the freedom to do that? You get the difference? Sometimes people aren't willing to do that because they have a pretty good idea of what your reaction is going to be to that. And they don't want to deal with that reaction. Now, it can be a little bit of a lack of love not being willing to deal with that reaction, but you, you can understand it, right? 
if the I love you enough and this is hard to say and hard for you to hear gets met back with an unwillingness to hear and an unwillingness to change, people stop being willing to put themselves in harm's way. Be willing to hear it. Be willing to hear the truth. Rejoice with the truth. It bears all things. It understands that there's a greater purpose, that there's a bigger, there's something bigger here that goes beyond us as individuals. It goes to a collective whole and that mission that the collective whole is on. So it gets beyond those offenses. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It has an optimistic outlook that good is going to win, that Jesus is victorious, and really he's already won, and we're going to see that ultimate victory. And so we maintain an attitude of hopefulness and of faith. Even when the world that we're in is chaotic and broken and on fire, we still hold on to Jesus is ultimately victorious, and that hope and faith that even in this upcoming situation or in the current situation, we're going to win. That God's power is going to be displayed. To endure all things, to follow Jesus for your whole life takes a lot of determination. It takes a lot of stick-to-itiveness to follow Jesus for your whole life. You know, we, we put the martyr on a pedestal. And we should in a certain way because they were willing to make that ultimate sacrifice for Jesus. They were willing to even die for his name. But can I contend with you that sometimes it's harder to live a long, full life for Jesus than it is to be a martyr? That in the circumstances, a person through the power of God and the Spirit of God rises to the equation and is willing to lose his life at the age of 25 for the name of Jesus. And we talk about the significant loss of having a short life, but it was lived for God and it you know, brought glory to his name. And we can rally around that, and certainly we should. <coughs> certainly we should. But what about the one who's 75 that for you know, 60 years has followed the Lord faithfully and served in small ways over and over and over again and hasn't gotten, you know, no, not even a blog post was ever written about this person. Not even a blog post. How many millions of those have been written? Not even one about this person's life, but they lived it faithfully for Jesus. That's not easy, and it should be celebrated because of the stick that it takes. Yes, I like that word. Stick to it. All right, don't give up, but don't rely on your own strength to not give up. Again, it comes down to dependence on Jesus holding on to him. So what do we see here is that love, as we examine this, is 
more than our a, a set of emotions or more than our current circumstances. It rises above those things. It's great when we feel love. With my wife, it's awesome when we feel in love with one another. But there are days when we might not like each other very much. But do we still love one another? Still try to live out these things, and maybe it's a little wrong to go back and use that illustration as I'm trying to get you away from that with this chapter. But even in the church, there's times where you might not like someone else in your house fellowship. You might not feel a great deal of emotions of likeness toward that person. You still going to love them? You're going to still seek their best in Jesus and seek the unity of the church? Or, and and are you going to deal with that issue, whatever it is, with that person directly? Are you going to go to that person and say, you know, I'm not feeling your love and you've offended me and let's work this out for the name of Jesus, for the sake of Jesus? Or, we can do that, we can do that. That's actually what the Bible wants us to do. We can do that, or we can go to other people and say, you know, I really don't like how Joe is treating me right now. And get somebody else mad at Joe, too. We can do that. And then, you know, we just have a bunch of people who don't like each other very much, don't, aren't honest about that, and aren't dealing with that, and then completely lose out on what God has for us and our place in his mission. We have a tendency to believe that our petty things are just that, that they're petty, and it's not really that big of a deal if I don't like this person or that person. Well, you might not, again, you might not feel like for that person for a period of time, but you better love that person. And in love, you better do the things that the Scripture says to do. If not, we're going to be in trouble. Because verse 8, let's move through this now. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think like a child, reason like a child. But when I came a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have also been known fully, or fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. So what's Paul saying here? Again, remember the list of spiritual gifts he gave back in chapter 12. And what he's saying is, listen, you know, all that stuff is temporary. There's going to be a point in time where, you know, none of it is necessary anymore. None of it's going to be necessary. But love is still going to be there. Faith, hope, and love are still going to be there. Love is still going to be there. Now, when are these things no longer needed? You know, when are they temporary when, and, and their usefulness has ended? About these spiritual gifts talked about in verse chapter 12. Well, some people take it as, you know, because it says uh, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. So some people take it as once the New Testament was, you know, finished, then we have the New Testament, we have the complete Word of God. We don't, in the, so the need for these you know, especially the um, 
sign sort of spiritual gifts, a testimony sort of spiritual gifts that God gives are no longer necessary in the church and are done away with. Some people have that view called cessationism. Okay, so that's one idea there. But I, and somebody may have that idea. I don't think these verses at least could be used for that, even though they're kind of primary verses used for this. I don't think they could be used for it for a couple of reasons. One, in 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18, Paul says, Now the Lord is a spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unfailed face, face beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed in the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So there's that transformation that's supposed to be incurring and ongoing that we are becoming more like Jesus. We need spiritual gifts to build up the church. That's the point of them, right? So until I'm fully like Jesus, I need spiritual gifts being in the church and put into my life. Okay? When am I going to be fully like Jesus? When he returns, you know, or when I see him, when I go to him or when he comes to me, one or the other, right? That's when I don't need it anymore. <coughs> Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beg you, brothers or brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And that transformation there is an ongoing, continuous metamorphosis. It's not a one-time stop thing like when we put our first faith in Jesus and we were saved and we passed from death unto life. That's salvation. Our ongoing sanctification is exactly that, ongoing. It's an ongoing metamorphosis that's going to take place until you see Jesus eye to eye. Fully, as he is. That will change everything. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one. But behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of my eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. But we're still going to have... Faith, hope, and love. It's got, the faith, hope, and love are going to be a little bit different. The faith is going to be different because it, it, it's more, our, our faith is, we're going to continue to trust God always, right? But we're going to know fully, fully, fully so much more than we did now. Like now we have the faith. Yes, Jesus did come and die on the cross for our sins, but we're going to have that faith actualized and the benefit of it when we're in his presence for eternity. It's going to change a little bit. Same with our hope. Our hope is that Christ will return. Our hope changes a little bit when he actually does return and we're with him. Hope is changed. Love is also changed. You know how love is going to be changed? Because I'm not going to have my sinful flesh anymore inhibiting. Inhibiting. Now, we'll talk more about the gifts and everything in chapter 14. Uh, you know, I would say my personal opinion is that we see more of the sign type of gifts where the places where the church is not established and where the people do not have the word of God you know, in their language and things like that because those people do need more of an outward sign. I want to caution us, though, who know Jesus not to be a generation that seeks for signs. Remember what Jesus said? You know, about the generation he was with, always seeking signs. They had Jesus right there with them. 
and even all the miracles he did, they always wanted something else. We don't need to be a generation that's always seeking this extra special thing from God to show us, to prove to us who he is or to, to know his presence. We can know his presence with the Holy Spirit and with the word and with remembering him and with our fellowship together and just asking for his presence. We don't have to have anything super, it is all supernatural, but we don't have to have like the extra special supernatural to prove it to us. We don't have to be people who seek for those things and who are desperate for those things and feel like that their spiritual life is on the rocks unless something, you know, wild has happened. So personally, I'm not a cessationist. I'm cautious because there's also lots of, you know, people doing things that are uh, for the wrong motivations, sometimes for fraud, and we need to be careful of those things as well. So don't be closed, but be cautious. Have the wisdom and discernment, you know, and evaluate things based on the Word of God and seek to know the Lord's truth if you're in, you know, situations where those sorts of things are happening or seem to be happening. But I fully believe that God is God of the living and not of the dead. And anything he was capable of doing in the past, he's fully capable of doing today. It's just a matter of his will and whether he wants to do it or will do it in a particular situation. And sometimes we can't understand the rhyme or reason to that. But it's not always for us to understand the rhyme or reason to that. Our place is to trust God. But back to the main point, because I don't want you to, you know, some of you unfortunately might walk away thinking about that issue after the message. And really, maybe I shouldn't even say anything, but I have to because I feel like we need to teach the whole passage, okay? But love. Let's talk about that. In your conversations, talk about that. What does that look like? How do we play that out? Where am I not loving? Where am I not loving? And to ask, be willing to ask the people closest to you who trust to tell you the truth, not just what you, do, what you want to hear. Are you, each of us willing today to ask a couple of close people to us and say, where in my life am I not loving? Will you tell me? And pray with me about that so I can make that right with God and perhaps make that right with another person and come out more like Jesus on the other side of it. That's hard homework. If I give homework for this message, it's simply that. Ask two to three people who are close to you in your life, where am I not loving? Where do I need to change? Where do I need to change? Don't ask, where does your husband or wife need to change? Or your friend need to change? Or your roommate need to change? Or someone else in the church needs to change? Ask, where do you? I need to ask, where do I need to change? Where am I not loving? Can we do that? And I'm also, I, I need to say this, uh, and this goes right along with this. So a lot of times our lack of love or our lack of, ab- our lack of ability in situations to get to the heart of the issue and to be able to maintain love in a relationship is the fact that we haven't dealt with past garbage. 
Do you understand that? It's like a person who wants to be a runner, but has a broken leg, but then doesn't get surgery, doesn't get that set right, and so the bones fuse back in the right way. person still might be able to walk and walk with a limp and get around, but they're never going to be able to run like they would if that, if that bone had been dealt with properly and healed properly, back to full strength and able to run, you know, to sprint. If we don't deal with our past garbage, maybe that's a harsh word, baggage, whatever you want to put on that, issues, issues, is that generic enough? If we don't deal with it, never going to be able to sprint. Always going to be limping. And let me just go ahead and tell you that every one of us has it. Every one of us has issues. You may think you don't have issues. You, if you don't think you have issues, then you really have issues. <laughs> just let me trust you on Trust me on that one. If you don't think you have issues, you really have issues. Because everybody has issues. It's bad to have issues. It's bad enough to not recognize. It's even worse to not recognize that you have issues. A lot of those issues come from our childhood. Things that happen that haven't been reconciled and haven't been dealt with. And there's been a, in those situations, there's been a lack of love. Love has been missing in some form or fashion. And that not being dealt with in Jesus has made it so that we don't fully know how and are capable of displaying the Christ-like love that we should in our interpersonal relationships now. They're barriers. Those things are barriers. And it's very, it can be very painful. And I'm going to ask my wife to forgive me because she has, I didn't ask permission. I'm always supposed to ask permission before I say these, these sort of things. But, you know, going, dealing with issues of lack of love in her past has caused a good bit of pain and difficulty and a lot of necessity to work through those things with a follower of Jesus. That follower of Jesus happens to be a Christian counselor. Okay? But hard to deal with that. Difficult to deal with that. But not dealing with that, so much more. So much more. And so, basically, those, those are the two questions that I have for you as we leave. Two things to do, two pieces of homework, two things to do. You want application, you want practical, what am I going to do with this message when I walk out of here? This one I'm going to be very, very explicit. Number one, identify and say, what are my issues? What's the root of that issue? Not dealing, see, we, so many times we want to deal with symptoms of the problems. You know, you want to be more patient, but you don't know where your lack of patience comes from. Identify. What is the root cause? Where did that start? Where did that begin? And deal with that 100% with the Lord. And in that process, that might, be a, that might be a very quick process for you, but don't be surprised if it's a much more drawn-out process where you need to talk to other people who have gone through similar things. And in some cases, it requires a professional, not just 
somebody else in the church that's a friend or whatever. Probably 90% of the stuff, 95% of the stuff we can deal with just with other followers of Jesus who love Jesus who are willing to tell us the truth, truth of Scripture. There's 5% need professional help for. Get it if you need it. That's, that's one. That's one. Two is to ask two to three people close to you who you know will tell you the truth, where do I lack love in my life? Where do I lack love? And if they say to you, oh, you're doing pretty good as far as I can tell, go ask someone else. (laughs) Walk away with something to work on. Walk away with something to work on before the Lord. Ask for accountability. Ask for help. I want you to understand the reason for this message is exactly this. It's love. It's the love that Christ gives. And some of it may come, come across as, you do this, and, you know, kind of hard. I don't intend for it to be. I'm sorry if it comes across that way. It's just that we know it's so fundamentally important for the health of the church, for the good of the whole, and for the individuals. Individually and collectively, it's an absolute necessity. And that our capacity for mission is dependent on how we love. Our capacity for mission is dictated by our ability to love. So we need to be healthy in Jesus in order to be able to love, in order to fully participate in the mission of Jesus. I'm sorry that message not given earlier. That's all I can say to that. We need, we need, we need to be full of love. There's some repentance that needs to take place in our church because of a lack of love for one another, a lack of love for God, a lack of love for God that's caused compromise after compromise after compromise in our lives. There needs to be repentance toward God. There needs to be repentance towards different people within the church. There needs to be repentance for a lack of focus on the mission as a result of those things. Now's as good a time as any. Because it won't get better without that. <laughs>